All right, well, good morning. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking at verse 3 and following. Uh, if you've been here, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians and uh, walking through some of the ideas Paul's using to set up this letter, which was meant to go through several churches in the area where Ephesus was. So it, it is the ch- a letter to a, the church of Ephesians, but it was meant to be a cyclical, to go around and address a certain topic uh, all through the churches in what they called Asia at the time. Now, the churches at that time have a problem, okay? They have this problem, and it's innate to all the churches of this area. If you look at a map here, okay, this is actually a map of Paul's second missionary journey, but uh, Ephesus is just right in here, okay? Ephesus is just right in here, and then uh, it's meant to go to these churches all through here. Now, Jerusalem down here. Right in all this area, uh, Paul himself is from right here, a place called Tarsus. All right, now uh, around oh, say 500, 600 BC, uh, Jerusalem is conquered by Assyria and Babylon, and a lot of Jews are carried out into captivity, and they are dispersed through this region. Uh, it's called the diaspora. All these Jews are taken and they are settled throughout this whole region. Now, once Israel kind of becomes, it's it's never its own nation again, but they are allowed to rebuild. A lot of Jews go back to live in Israel proper, but many Jews just stayed where they were. And so even when the Roman Empire came into power, you had high Jewish populations or significant, I should say, uh, Jewish populations in all the cities of the Roman Empire, of Alexander the Great's empire. Lots of Jews all through there so that when Christianity starts, early Christian churches were made up of Jewish and Greek, and that's what the kind of the idea, Greek populations. So, uh, so you had this, these churches that were made up of Jews and Gentiles. I'll be using the term Greeks and Gentiles interchangeably if you're not familiar with them. And the point is that there had been centuries of associated ideas with these groups, okay? Now, follow me here because Jews at the time believed that if you're not Jewish, you're not saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You're not saved if you're not Jewish. Uh, They had an idea that some Gentiles could convert to a religious Judaism, but even then some Jews questioned whether or not they would be saved. Uh, Jews uh, become very concerned with racial purity because the idea is if you're not Jewish, you're not saved. Uh, And have gone so far in their understanding of their own moral codes uh, and their understanding of the law that they would be walking down the street and when they would see a Gentile coming toward them would point at them and start screaming unclean and run to the other side of the, the street, which is not how you build a welcoming church, okay? We've tried to do that here. It was terrible. It didn't work. All right. On the other hand, you have uh, Gentiles who uh, are Greeks who look at Jews as being these backward people who won't associate with them, who uh, at that time hospitality code is very important and they would invite people to come eat with them, which is this huge social deal and they would be refused and they wouldn't eat their food and they wouldn't step in their houses. And there's just this animosity between them. And so when Paul starts writing uh, the letter to Ephesians, one of the main 
main points in the book of Ephesians, believe it or not, is this tearing down and understanding of Jew and Gentile. That Paul wants that gone. Now he's not saying that you can't be Jewish in culture anymore. And he's not saying you can't be Greek or Gentile in culture anymore. He's saying to God, and in other places he puts it specifically, there is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There's one new person before God. Uh, if you open up, uh, if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 2, you would see the breakdown of these ideas. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10, is written to the Jew. You are saved by grace, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's one of the most famous gospel passages in the Bible. If you keep reading, it switches over to the Gentile. You were Gentiles, alienated in mind. You had no idea who God was. You didn't know anything about the prophets or Moses. Uh, salvation came to you from Israel. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, he starts trying to say, you need to stop this. You're all one person now. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile. In verse 13 he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off has been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there you see, Paul the Jew is speaking to the Gentiles and his fellow Jews and saying, he has made us both one. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in his ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those of you who were near. Uh, this is code for those who are far off is the Gentile. They weren't raised under Moses. They weren't raised knowing who Ezekiel was. They weren't raised knowing the name Abraham. That's the Gentile, far off. And peace to those who are near, the Jew. The idea being you both need Christ desperately. And if you don't have him, neither one of you are saved. Okay? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now this question of Jew and Gentile and how salvation comes to them both is prevalent in a lot of Paul's works. Okay, Ephesians, obviously, huge deal. I've already spoken to you about Galatians where it says there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. Uh, there's no male, there's no female. He says you're all one in Christ. There's no distinctions. It plays a significant place in Romans. Uh, Romans, if you know, is Paul's salvation doctrine laid out. Uh, sin, salvation, grace, faith, atonement, what happens when we still struggle with sin, how do we understand God? And in both of those contexts, in the context of speaking about Jew and Gentile, about how salvation comes to people, Paul brings up a concept that is not very popular to talk about, but must be, okay? And that is the concept of election and predestination. 
Oh, that took a left turn, didn't it? Weren't ready for that. Now, I know you're sitting here going, why would you talk about this? Have you lost your mind? All right. Uh, well, the reason we're going to talk about this morning is because Ephesians chapter one is one of the places in the Bible that is significant in its investment in the understanding of these concepts. You can't read Ephesians chapter one and not notice that in verses three through 14, the word election, the word chosen and the word predestination are all through it. All right. Uh, we hope we are never a church that won't talk about something in the Bible because it's going to be difficult, right? We always want to say, let's talk about it. Let's put it out there. Let's make sure that we're doing the best we can with it. We're never going to be a church that goes, this is unpopular. We may not want to, this, this causes problems. Let's not talk about it. We do want to talk about it. All right. We want to bring it out and we want to look at it because this is a biblical concept. Now, the first thing that you might say is, but I don't believe in election or predestination. I don't believe in those things at all. Well, let me stop you real quick because that's not totally true. What you probably mean is that you don't believe in a particular way of thinking about election and predestination. If you want to be a biblical Christian, you must believe in election and predestination because they're all through the New Testament. All right. Uh, The word uh, elect uh, is in the New Testament some 50 times. Uh, it's uh, Now, to be fair, some of those are when the word choose is used. So choose this day, well, how you shall live, that kind of stuff. Same word. Uh, but uh, many times, almost 30 times, it's used in the concept of election. Uh, and so we have to deal with it. Now, when you say, but I don't, I, I don't believe in it, slow down. Because you do. You just may have a different system of thinking about it. But to not believe in it means you're going to throw out large portions of your New Testament. To be clear, a a concept of election and predestination, of that that idea, uh, is taught in all the Gospels. It's taught by John in his epistle. It's taught by Peter in his epistle. James, Paul, uh, all the Gospels, Luke. It's filled. You can't open a book and not have to deal with it in some way. So that's why we want to talk about it this morning. The systems that we most often think about, how to think about the concepts of election and predestination. By the way, if you're visiting fellowship, welcome. Uh, uh, Are most commonly called Arminianism and Calvinism. Now, you may not be familiar with these terms at all. And you may never even heard of election and predestination. That's great. Do the best you can to wipe this morning from your memory. All right? Not really, because we want to walk through these. Now, if you aren't familiar with these terms... Uh, Arminianism and Calvinism. Let me break them down for you very quickly. Number one, Arminianism. It is not Armenianism. Armenians are Russians. Okay? Arminius was a man. Arminianism. Arminianism is the idea that humanity is given freedom to choose whether they will choose God or not. And the concept of election and predestination in Arminianism says that God foreknew who would choose him before he created the world. He knew these are the people who will choose me. And those are his elect, the people that he knew would choose him. Calvinism, as you probably know, uh, teaches that God foreknew that no one would choose him because of sin. And he chose who will be saved based on his sovereign decree and based on nothing that person 
thought, did, any, has no bearing on it whatsoever. He freely chooses. Those are the two ideas. Now, if you know anything about these ideas, these are concepts that can tear a church apart. Right? This, these can get very contentious. Debates can become very nasty. This is the number one thing college students love to talk about and want to debate. And if you ever go into the blogosphere, you can get crucified if you fall on one side or another on these two issues. So let me tell you what fellowship's official stance is on these two issues. Right? This is the official stance. We don't pick sides. Right? Now, a lot of churches are doing this. They're picking a side on Calvinism or Arminianism. What we are much more concerned with uh, and want to make sure that we're following the line on is that both Calvinism and Arminianism are actually subsets of a greater theological distinction. Right? Those two ideas are both actually subsets of a theology called Augustinianism, named for St. Augustus. All right? Or St. Augustine, excuse me. Uh, now, what is the difference between Augustinianism and its counterpart, Pelagianism? That's what we're really concerned about. Uh, Pelagius was a guy who comes along in the late 300s and starts teaching a version of Christianity that becomes universally rejected. All right? Now, let me be clear about this because I want you to see how, how crucial this is. There is no church uh, until the modern age that has accepted Pelagianism as Orthodox Christianity. What I mean to say is the Catholic Church condemned Pelagianism all through its history. Protestant churches condemned Pelagianism all through their existence. Evangelicals condemned Pelagianism as heretical. Pelagianism has all sorts of ideas. It's the idea that there's no such thing as original sin. Uh, humanity was not totally destroyed by sin. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross is not a substitutionary atonement. Uh, it was just a moral example. You didn't need your sins paid for. You needed an example of how to live better. Those kind of ideas that became very popular in liberal Protestant Christianity in the early 1900s. That's Pelagianism. What we are concerned about is that those crucial, critical, foundational understandings of the gospel are what we're worried about. That humanity is totally destroyed by sin. Both Arminianism and Calvinism believe that. That humanity cannot save itself in any capacity. Pelagianism says people are basically good. They can work it out on their own. Augustinianism says without God's grace... We're all dead to sin. We're all dead in sin. We're going to draw the circle here. Okay? That's where we draw the circle. Now, uh, there's still going to be a lot of debate. Okay? There's still debate. There's debate on our staff. On our staff, we have Calvinists. On our staff, we have Arminians. We debate. But we make sure that the circles we draw are around Augustinianism and not just Calvinism or just Arminianism. Uh, just so you know, I am a Calvinist. Okay, that's, that's where I'm going to fall on this debate. Rick is a Calvinist. Uh, it's going to bleed into our teachings. We have people on staff who are Arminians. We debate with them. Would we ever let an Arminian teach up here? Of course we would. And then we would get up the next week and correct it. <laughs> the, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Okay. 
We want us to look at it this way. <clears throat> whether or not you're a member of our church is not dependent on whether or not you're a Calvinist or Arminian. It's the gospel. That's our, that's our thing. The gospel is uh, where we're going to draw that circle, where we're going to say, this is the line. And then the talk about Calvinism and Arminianism becomes a family talk. Does that make sense? It should be seen as, hey, I believe you're a Christian. I disagree with your interpretation here. Hey, I believe you're a Christian. I disagree with your interpretation here. It becomes a family talk, right? The famous kind of Norman Rockwall family talk, because that's how well we handle it, right? Let's be honest. That's how it goes, right? <laughs> family talk. Let's go. It's time to go, okay? Of course, there's going to be distinctions, and, and some of the questions that we're going to ask have merit, you know? Calvinists, or excuse me, Arminians are going to ask Calvinists, um, your system seems deterministic. Like people's will doesn't matter. How can there be any freedom there? What's a relationship with God if you have no freedom? Those are the questions that are going to be asked. Calvinists are going to ask Arminians, your system is synergistic. How is it not semi-Pelagianism? Calvinists deny that their system is deterministic. Arminians deny that their system is semi-Pelagian. If you don't follow that at all, that's okay. I'm doing it for the people who are going to fight about this. They're going to deny that. We have to say, you're a family member who I disagree with. You're a family member who sits down at Thanksgiving dinner and talks about the Washington Redskins instead of the Dallas Cowboys. Let him who has ears understand. Right? <laughs> that's okay. You just might have to eat at the kids' table. All right? But regardless of what we believe about those two things, and I would encourage you to investigate them, uh, if you've never heard of them before, because at the root of them is a biblical teaching on election and predestination that Paul feels is important enough to lead off the book of Ephesians. Okay? It's important enough to him that we understand something about this that he leads off the entire book of Ephesians with it. So let's go to the text and let's take a look at it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, as you're going to see, he's going to put this picture into an understanding that God has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, even, verse 4 says, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's the opening line of the book of Ephesians. That you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Meaning that before God made anything, regardless of how you think how he did it, God looked at his elect and said to you, I will give every spiritual blessing. From before there was an Adam, God had decided my elect have my full power in their favor. And you should make sure that you don't see that meaning physical blessing. Because a lot of people have God's every spiritual blessing and have hardship. Right? They get thrown in lion's dens. 
They get run out in the middle of the country where they pray they're going to die. They have their heads cut off by a king they denounce. They, they have all kinds of issues. And we should never mistake having physical blessing with the Lord being against us. The picture that Paul wants to put forward to the Ephesian and Asian Christians is that from before the foundation of the world, God had set on his elect his powerful blessings, every spiritual blessing given in him from before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, here's where we need to make a distinction. When we use these words, oftentimes we use them as synonyms. We use them as synonyms, and in a way, that's okay. We say election and predestination as though they are synonyms. In a way, that's okay, but they're actually two different concepts, but they are totally intertwined, okay? They're completely dependent on each other, but they are different concepts. Number one, uh, this word chose right here is the Greek word elect, okay? Same word. Uh, it's just here you rendered as chose rather than to say, even as he elected us in him, it just says, as he chose us in him, same word, same Greek word that everywhere else is, is translated elect elect chose is exactly that meaning to be chosen. You are chosen, but chosen for what are you following me? You are chosen, chosen for what you are Elect to be predestined. Predestined is different than elect. We are predestined to be adopted as sons through Jesus. So we're chosen to be predestined. Now one of the big kind of misunderstandings of any understanding of the doctrine of election will be something like this. So you're saying that someone could believe the gospel, they could totally believe Jesus, uh, and they think they're a Christian and they live their lives thinking, I'm a Christian. I've done everything I can, I'm supposed to do. And they die and they get to heaven and they say, Jesus, I love, here I am. And he's going to go, oh, I'm sorry. You weren't elect. You're out. Sorry. But I believe. Nah, sorry. You're out. Sorry. Nothing I can do. Your name wasn't on the list. Like, like having some big club and, you know, it's like, mm, sorry. Give me a hundred. Maybe I can work something out. But no, sorry than that. That's not a fair rendering of an understanding of this doctrine. See, what this doctrine says is that anyone who believes the gospel is the elect. And no one who's not elect will ever believe the gospel. You see what I mean? See, you are chosen to do what? To be predestined for adoption as sons to the gospel. You'll see in a later text it says, he predestined us uh, to be the first to hope in Christ. The next passage will say that. The picture is that anyone who believes the gospel truly grasps the gospel did so because they were elect. They were chosen. Now, again, systems vary at how you get to this picture. But what you need to know is that only the elect believe the gospel. No one who's not elect ever believes the gospel. To, to say there's going to be somebody in heaven going, I wanted to believe in Jesus and I couldn't because I wasn't elect. Never going to happen. That's a basic understanding of human nature. 
See, a Pelagian understanding of gospel or, or of the worldview would say, but people want to believe God, they want to love God, and he won't let them because they're not elect. That's Pelagian. We're never going there. We understand that sin has ruined humanity and made us by will, by birth, and by choice sinners and enemies of God. No one wants to believe the gospel in their own flesh. Everyone must have God's grace in order to overcome that sinful inclination to believe the gospel. And to be clear, both Arminians and Calvinists believe that. If you hear me say that and you go, well, that's Calvinism. No, that's Augustinianism. That's Arminianism. God's grace must first work in order for any human to have any chance. Nobody's up there going, I, did, I wanted to, but you didn't let me. No, 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 no. Stop right there. You're wandering outside the circle a little bit. Come on back in the circle. All right. You skip down in Ephesians 1 to verse 11. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you were here last week, if, you, if this is your first week here or you've missed, or please go to our website and listen to the first two sermons we did on Ephesians. They're going to help make this clear. But you see twice in this section, if you were here last week, to the praise of his glory. Why does God save this way? To the praise of his glory. That's always the why with God. Why? To the praise of his glory. That's why. It's always the answer. But in this, again, Paul's purpose is for us to sit and say, look at the favor God has poured out on us. It is truly incredible. It's overwhelming. We are predestined for an inheritance. An inheritance of him. The inheritance is, is, is uh, we acquire possession, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The inheritance is God. <clears throat> it's being with him and understanding that what Christ did when Christ comes to the earth, it is not an exercise in hypotheticals. And what I mean by that is Christ doesn't come to the earth and go, hey, I'm going to die from humanity's sin and I hope somebody digs it. I hope somebody's with me. Christ came loving the elect. Okay, in a specific way. Don't get me wrong. I do believe God loves everyone in certain ways. But there's a certain kind of love God poured out on his elect, regardless of how you get there. That Christ came to save these people. To show them a love that is boundless, that is decreed by him from before the foundation of the world. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. If you're here and you know Christ, he loved you before the ages began. If you think when you die and go to heaven, you're going to feel like you're finally home, Christ is going to say, my brother or sister who I have known from before time is home. It's a powerful reality, a powerful understanding of what God did. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is one of people's favorite passages, especially Romans 8, 28, right? A lot of people love Romans 8, 28. For we know that God works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, who love God. You keep reading in that section, and it says this, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Now, usually in Bibles, that section ends, and there's a little break, and then it starts a new section, which is terrible, because it's all supposed to be read together. Because what you're supposed to do when you walk out of Ephesians 1, or you walk out of Romans 8 and 9, is get this picture. For those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? We know a God who set forth the ages to know us and more specifically for us to know him. I know sitting out here, there are adamant Calvinists and there are adamant Arminians. And I'm glad we need each other in a lot of ways. But what we both have in these passages is an understanding of a God who put forward a world in which his people were known to him and elect a people on whom he has given every spiritual blessing and a people on whom his love was his foundational thought. The election and predestination aren't doctrines of a cruel God going, mm-mm. Election and predestinations are doctrines of a God going, mine. And that's what we're meant to see. Would you stand and pray with me? As we close our time together, some of our elders and their spouses will be here to pray with you. If, if you need prayer for anything this week, uh, home situation, health, job, whatever it is, uh, the Bible tells us that we're to bring everything to God and petition in prayer and that praying with our elders uh, is a, an excellent spiritual discipline. So if you need prayer, please come. But especially this morning, if you want to hear about a God of love, not a God of rules, not a God of do-betters, but a God who has set his love on his people from before the world and a doctrine that says Jesus came to die to save his people. We would love for you to come. Otherwise, uh, let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed.
Our Father in God, we praise you for the glories you put forward in Christ. Glories from before the foundation of the world. Father, I pray that you take my, uh, my fallible human tongue and do a work with it. To transcend things that can really wound people and rather make them about the glories of your name. God, I pray that this morning what we hear is <clears throat> a God of love who has set forward his plan to save his people. And we praise you because of it. Glory to the name of God. Glory to the praise of your glory. We pray it all in Jesus' most powerful holy name. Amen.